Hi everyone and welcome to For Fat's Sake, Ferret's podcast about misinformation and fat checking. I am your host, the faithful Ali Bryan, and alongside me, the Odysseus of oratory, it's Paul, the podcast, Dobson. How are you, Paul? I'm very well, Ali. I can tell you've been in Greece for two weeks based right. on that nickname. Looking at ancient ruins and thinking about the podcast nicknames. I like that. It's a good mm. way to spend your holidays. When you said looking at ancient ruins, I thought that was you looking at me through the Zoom call, but no. Oh, harsh on yourself. Harsh. No, I'm ecstatic to be back in Glasgow after a terrible sunny couple of weeks in Greece. Um, back on the hunt for misinformation and fact-checking. But what have we got coming up this week, Paul? Who are we speaking to about this most labyrinthine of topics yeah so we've got a really interesting interview with Sian Norris who is a journalist who has written for the fair in the past and mm. covers um, abortion particularly and women's reproductive rights and um, we're discussing with her misinformation around abortion and reproductive rights across the world and also in the UK um, as a really interesting discussion what else have we got coming up we are looking at one of the first uses of AI audio to deepfake a UK political figure um, that has come out about Keir Starmer. So stay tuned for us explaining that. And on Paul's Curiosity Corner this week, you've come to me with a claim about the COVID-19 vaccine, an emergency alert system, and people turning into zombies. Is that fair? I think that sums it up. So you can stay tuned for that later on. Exactly. What more could you want in a podcast? Okay, let's start off with the interview with Sian. I'm Sian Norris. I'm a freelance investigative journalist, and I'm also the author of Bodies Under Siege, the, how the far-right attack on reproductive rights went global, which came out earlier this summer. Okay, thanks for joining us, Shan. So we're here to discuss the role of disinformation and conspiracy theories in the rising tide of anti-abortion rhetoric, which I think we're seeing across the world. I don't know if you agree. But I wondered if, first of all, you could outline the threat to reproductive rights as it currently stands around the world, um, and as well as just closer to home in the UK as well. So it's a as ever, a complicated picture when it comes to threats to reproductive rights. Obviously, the biggest threat that we have seen in recent years has been the overruling of Roe v. Wade, which allowed for safe and legal abortion across the United States. Um, that law was introduced in 1973, and it was overruled in last summer, you know, July 2022, or June 2022, sorry. Um, and what we saw there was you know, the culmination of 50 years of anti-abortion activism and disinformation coming from the US Christian and far right. Um, what's been really concerning since the overhauling of Roe v. Wade is how it has sent a signal to, um, to anti-abortion networks and organisations and advocates around the world, saying to them, you know, if America can get rid of abortion, then why shouldn't we? Why can't we? Um, in Europe, we've seen a tightening of Poland's existing anti-abortion bans. So abortion has been illegal in Poland for, for many years. However, they've increased the ban so that now 
there were, there used to be sort of free exemptions in the abortion ban, rape and incest, cases of uh, threat to the woman's life and cases of fetal anomaly. However, they recently repealed the fetal anomaly um, exemption, which means it's now even harder to access abortion, safe and legal abortion in Poland. And we've seen women go to, you know, go to court for providing abortions in Poland. I think we're also seeing a real pushback against abortion rights in sub-Saharan Africa and East Africa. And this has gone hand in hand with anti-LGBT rhetoric and anti-LGBT legislation. And so across the world, it's a complicated picture, but we are seeing this pushback, this rollback, this anti-abortion rhetoric. At the same time, on a more positive note, I think the overruling of Roe v. Wade almost woke people up to the fact that there was a threat to abortion. Um, people who kind of thought that these rights were settled, that women's right to bodily autonomy and bodily integrity was just a given, are now aware how quickly and easily abortion rights can be overruled and taken away. And so that has galvanized as a sort of feminist movement and a pro-abortion movement. However, it's sad, it's, you know, it's, it's taken this sort of horrific wake-up call from the States for us to realize that. You've written a lot about the links between anti-abortion groups and conspiracy theorists, essentially, mm. on the far right of politics. Um, and in your book, for example, you describe how opposition to abortion can act as a gateway drug mm-hmm. um, to the acceptance of other far-right views um, and other conspiracy views as well. So things we've discussed a lot on this podcast, like QAnon and the Grace, Great Replacement Theory. So can you explain and sort of tease out why um, it acts as that kind of gateway drug? Yeah, so I think the sort of wake-up call for me on this was a few years ago um, when I was looking into anti-abortion movements for open democracy. And I was sort of Googling, like, who were the UK anti-abortion, you know, movers and shakers, as it were? Who are the influencers? And I came across this organisation called UK Life League, which credits itself as being the pioneers of these kind of anti-abortion protests that we see using very graphic imagery, graphic language outside maternity hospitals and um, abortion clinics. I would argue that they're not the first group to have done that. But, you know, this is what their website likes to claim. Um, And I was looking into it and I found that the person who set up this organization was Jim Dowson, who is more famous for his role founding um, Britain First, which is the sort of Islamophobic far right organization. And he now is involved with this incredibly extreme far right organization called the Knights Templar International, where he makes these very ranty, angry videos often about abortion. And so what I was like discovering by looking at this was how far right activists were seeing abortion as part of this great replacement conspiracy theory. So this is a completely baseless conspiracy theory that white people in the global north are being replaced by um, immigrant people and migrant people from the global south. And that this is being aided by the feminist movement who are repressing the white birth rate through abortion. And so suddenly this kind of opened up this whole world to me because I think like in many people, I'd always assumed that anti-abortion was rooted in a sort of religious faith or a yeah. Christian faith or, or, or any kind of religious faith. And that while I might not agree with it, if that's someone's personal belief, as long as it's not you know, being used in a violent way outside clinics, for example, then it's, it's up to everyone to have that, that personal yeah. belief. And instead, what I discovered was that this anti-abortion movement was increasingly mired in far-right conspiracy and politics such as the Great Replacement Theory. More and more we were seeing anti-abortion politics enmeshed in this sort of racist ideology that we needed to ban abortion in order to raise the white birth rate. 
And then I was looking more at kind of other far right subcultures, such as the trad wife subculture, which is sort of the women of the far right and found um, things called the White Baby Challenge, which was a, a female far-right influencer called Ayla Stewart, who had six babies, and she set this thing, that the White Baby Challenge, I've had six babies for the, you know, for the white race, effectively. Who can beat me? Can, you know, can you beat me? And I was seeing women posting how, about how many babies they wanted to have in order to beat replacement. Like, that's the language they're using. Not because they no. want to have another baby because they love being a mom, but it's like, this is a tactic to beat replacement. And of course, on the flip side to this, you know, we know that in America, for example, abortion bans have a more likely to impact black and minority ethnic women. In the past, it's black and minority ethnic women that have, you know, more commonly died because of abortion bans in the States because of, you know, racism, systemic racism in healthcare. Um, but this far right ideology is very focused on raising the white birth rate through banning abortion. And the flip side in the most horrific way to that is trying to, you know, thinking of like sterilizing black women or, you know, genocidal policies basically around black women's bodies. And I think it's really important to note that, like, they're not interested, you know, there's, this is about the white birth rate and then, you know, grotesque, violent harm to to black women's bodies. So it was really interesting. And then of course, the other conspiracy theory that you mentioned was the QAnon conspiracy theory. And the first time, again, when I started looking at these anti-abortion groups, I went undercover in um, an anti-abortion group in, from the UK that at the time had been targeting a Labour MP, Stella Creasy. And yeah. I went to their training academy and they gave this big talk about how abortion was a form of satanic ritual abuse. I mean, I nearly fell off my chair at this point. Yeah. I was, you know, I was undercover, like, trying to keep my face in the sort of like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm very on board yeah, with this. Um, and of course, what we know now is that the QAnon conspiracy theory is very much this idea that of like killing children or torturing children in order to, you know, in satanic rituals. Um, this is part of this horrific, again, baseless conspiracy theory. And what I thought was really interesting about this is not only is that kind of, you know, satanic ritual abuse conspiracies have long been associated with anti-Semitism and with the far right, but also this kind of idea that women who have abortions are like satanic, that they're devilish, that they're unnatural. I'm quite interested in how how the ideas sort of move from the fringe into sort of more mainstream and uh, again in your book you describe pipeline uh, mm. of these fascistic ideas sort of being expressed online in quite marginalized spaces but then eventually moving into the halls of power or into if not the halls of power into sort of mainstream political parties uh, or at least versions of these ideas entering into mainstream political parties so can you just ex- explain that pipeline and maybe give an example of where that's mm. happened what I think has been really interesting with the anti-abortion movement is how it has become this rhetoric, these conspiracies have become increasingly mainstream. And as you say, I sort of talk about it in the book as a pipeline. So when you think about um, the way that kind of right-wing populist politics has been going in the last, I don't know, decade, if not longer, um, we've increasingly seen these kind of anti-migrant anti-woman anti-lgbt narratives taking hold and things you know the the great replacement conspiracy theory was something that existed in far-right channels on the fringes of the internet then you have um now you see in like hungary for example that they're incentivizing women to have more children more ethnic hungarian babies with um tax cuts we have the uk government 
conservative um, influences praising the Hungarian scheme in terms of, of, of raising birth rates. And of course, we have the overhauling of Roe. So how I like can view this pipeline is quite simple in some ways, complicated in others. You have these far-right groups, these, these ideologies, these hateful conspiracy theories festering online, talking about great replacement, talking about white birth rates, talking about how women who choose to have abortions or choose not to get married or choose to be lesbians. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that women choose to be gay, but you know, that's how they frame it. Um, Mm. And it's like, they're selfish and they're individualistic. And that these are, you know, this is what's causing the decline of Western civilization. But then you see these organizations who, which are much more mainstream, you know, they have presence at the United Nations, they, they go and speak at the European Parliament, they've got mm. representatives in going and addressing national governments, they organize conferences where, you know, presidents and prime ministers mingle with activists and mingle with um, funders, and they sort of whitewash these nasty ideologies and present them in a much more palatable way. So one of the um, organizations that I really focus on is the Spanish organization Citizen Go, which is um, set up by a Spanish guy called Ignacio Asuega. Apologies for Spanish speakers listening. I probably not pronounced his name correctly. Um, And what they do is they put out petitions um, and get people to sign these petitions. And when you look at the language of the petitions, you know, they're not talking about white birth rates. They're not talking about Satan. (laughs) But they're yeah. talking about um, how anti-abortion policies are like infringing on women's human rights, or they're talking about how sex education is causing children to be divided from their parents. And then, because these people, you know, set up these conferences or attend these conferences where they're they're talking to, um, you know, politicians and world leaders, these narratives get picked up and then are sort of put into policy. So one of the things that's interesting about Citizen Go is they're very close to the Vox far-right political party in Spain. And, you know, we've seen in recent years Vox increase its influence, particularly in terms of pushing the centre-right party to more anti-gender positions. The other organisation that was very dominant in the 2010s and is less dominant now for various reasons, but whose sort of alumni are very, um, you know, very present in in the anti-gender world was Agenda Europe, and they put together a manifesto called, I mean, it always sounds an Agenda for Europe by Agenda for Europe, <laughs> restoring the natural it's order. An agenda for Europe by Agenda for Europe. <laughs> agenda Europe, um, and in it they talk, you know, they talk about the tactics and the strategies that will achieve their goals. Their goals being ending abortion, ending divorce, getting rid of any pro LGBT equality laws. And again, you see one of the strategies that they talk about is to talk about demographics, like, to you know, they're like, we can talk about demographics and how we need to raise the birth rate. Um, And they also talk about, you know, using the language of the opposition against them, which means talking about women's health, women's human rights, that we care about women, we love women. It's those pro-abortionists that don't respect women's bodies, Mm -hmm. nonsense like this. And I think what's been really concerning since I the book was published is that it's gotten worse. So I was observing mm. all of this stuff through 2019, 2022, you know, and then the book was sort of finally, finally handed in in January 23. And just before it came out, we had the National Conservatism Conference in the UK, 
um, where we saw a lot of these anti-gender um, activists standing up next to, you know, former cabinet ministers, you know, the leading lights of the Conservative Party, and they were talking about birth rates, they were talking about demographics, they were talking about liberal individualism, which again is this sort of code language about how women are being too selfish to have babies. Yeah, and so it's really become apparent that, again, these sort of nasty theories that existed online have been laundered by these conferences, by these gatherings, and by these influential organisations to become a normal conversation in right-wing politics, and that should alarm us all. Okay, Ali, so for the site this week, you've been fact-checking a alleged video of Keir Starmer talking slightly unflatteringly to an aide and about Liverpool. Uh, that particular audio recording isn't all that it seems. So can you just describe to us what the audio was that was shared online? Yeah, so on Sunday, this is during the Labour Party conference, which has been taking place over the weekend in the last few days, um, an audio clip that was circulated around social media that, as you say, alleged to show or to, or to record Keir Starmer's voice, um, say at the first in the first audio clip abusing a party staffer um, in a very in a um, expletive filled manner, and then a second video in which um, the voice that similar to Starmer's, uh, he's. Sh- complaining that he was shouted at and called a Tory by a Liverpool resident and complaining about having to do the Labour Party conference in City, um, claiming that he fucking hates Liverpool. Okay, so where was that audio shared? Uh, yeah, so it was shared on X, formerly Twitter, by a user yeah. who claimed to have uh, obtained audio of Keir Starmer verbally abusing his staffers at conference and obtained a, quote, secret recording of Keir Starmer at conference, this time appearing to take aim at the City of Liverpool. Um, it was also shared pretty widely on TikTok and on X. It was pro- a platform kind of promoted by a number of fairly high-profile accounts, including um, one of uh, somebody who's appeared in this podcast uh, before, not in person, but as a topic, George Galloway. Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> okay, and your sort of explainer on that audio didn't come to a conclusion about whether the recording was false. But you believe it's likely to be false, is that correct? So why? Yeah, so it, identifying AI, AI audio particularly is really, really difficult because you can't, there's there's no, often there's no definitive way to, sit, to, to say without having, you know, getting the source of it, the additional source of it and all that back to say 100 million percent that it's definitely false. We are pretty sure that it's false, as sure as we can be, um, having spoken to uh, experts and uh, analyzed the background of the person who tweeted it and the audio itself. So, yeah, there's a few sort of clues that you can use. We talk about this before in this podcast about how you can identify fake images and fake video and stuff like that. And often it's not necessarily there's stuff around, there's context around the video or the audio itself that is actually quite important for identifying it. In this case, if you go to the actual person, the actual user, Twitter user who shared it, I mean, it's pretty clear they've been they've made it for comic effect, like as a sort of way to make fun yeah. of Keir Starmer. Um, if you look at their other posts, you see them retweeting posts talking about it being an AI and talking about it being fake news and, you know, basically suggesting without suggesting that it's been artificially generated. 
Um, the whole thing basically appears to have been a joke, which is fair enough. But as we've talked about very recently on this podcast, quite often the problem with that is that a lot of people aren't aware that it's a joke and it gets used, and particularly when it's quite high, relatively high tech in terms of uh, the sort of stuff we see in terms in terms of the use of AI. Um, the voice is is incredibly accurate. Like in terms of the voice sounds a lot like Keir Starmer's voice. Um, there's also some other clues. Uh, we went to um, a, a former podcast guest, um, uh, Professor Ollie Buckley, who's a professor of cybersecurity, and asked him about um, some of the kind of telltale things that might make you think that this wasn't accurate. Um, he said also, again, that it's very AI audio is really difficult to spot, but there's stuff like unnatural pauses or patterns of speech can be um, a clue as to it not being correct. Right. Um, the rhythm or the flow of what they're saying may not match up to the word. So he used the example in the Starmer audio of the emphasis being kind of not where you'd expect it. So he's like swearing and becoming seemingly becoming really annoyed, but his tone isn't really keeping up consistently with that. Um, it's all quite flat and level. I know some people would say that like, could be a characteristic of Keir Starmer's speech. But even Keir Starmer, when he's getting angry, would probably have a, a bit more of a raised voice. There's, you know, The way that it's laid out is quite unusual. It's quite an unusual like um, way of speaking. Um, other good indicators are stuff like the cadence and the tempo of speech, um, because the stresses are sometimes put on the wrong words. Because the AI audio, it, what it does is it uses, um, it, you, you feed into it clean audio of a person saying a lot of you know a minute or so of audio of them saying stuff and then it is able to synthesize a voice sounding the same to say whatever you want it to say using the, the vocal clues from that using artificial intelligence um but yeah the, the kind of stresses and stuff on the words might be wrong because they might not match up with how that person naturally would talk if you see what i mean because it's only using the ai of that little clip I mean, I can see why people find this kind of thing quite scary, given the explanation you've just given there, because, mm. you know, you can debunk AI um, recordings or voice recordings, but you have to be quite attuned to, you know, speech patterns and things like that to do that. Um, I suppose my question is, how easy is it to make convincing AI audio fakes like this? Yeah, well, that's the problem as well, is it's very easy now. Um, yeah. There's like the technology's moved really fast, and we talked before about the kind of the way that AI's availability. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, Dali, we've talked about ChatGPT, etc., Midjourney, all the kind of various um, platforms which you can use to make video images, uh, to make make images and make um, text using AI. Um, and audio is another sort of frontier uh, of AI at the moment. And yeah, so the technology's moved really fast, even over the last year or so. There's multiple websites now. If you just Google now like, AI audio creating AI audio, there's all sorts of websites that will offer you, of varying qualities, the ability to make AI audio for free um, in a short clip, or even for a very small a small amount per month. Um, and again, the thing um, that you have when you're talking about a celebrity is it's very, very easy to find clear audio of them. So if it's somebody famous, there's, you know, Keir Starmer has, will have hours and hours and hours of clearly recorded crisp audio of him speaking that can be used to train an AI and to synthesize his voice. So it's, yeah, it's, it's incredibly easy to do without a huge amount of technical knowledge now. I feel like we've been asking this question for a few years now um, about deepfakes and AI audio and the impact they're going to have on politics mm. and the future. Do you think that we are now seeing that coming in and are we going to see this impacting polit political figures in the future? 
Yeah, well, this is something that we asked um, Ollie Buckley, uh, who's obviously an expert in this area. And his answer was sort of potentially, um, in terms of there is certainly the technology is obviously available and it will happen. Um, whether or not it's going to be widespread was yet to be seen. Um, he said the biggest hurdle in you know, creating good quality AI audio is having the patience to collect the audio samples that you need to, to you know, so obviously it's going to be fairly easy for someone like Keir Starmer, but maybe less easy for other people, certainly less easy for people who aren't celebrities. Um, and, you know, removing background noise and stuff, that all that sort of stuff is is still at the moment fairly time consuming. Um, but again, it will become easier as the technology becomes better. So, Ali, last week, sadly, millions of people across America were turned into zombies after the 5G in their phones triggered their COVID vaccines. Or at least that was what was supposed to have happened, according to some conspiracy theories circulating online. So what was actually going on? This is a conspiracy that was circulating online last week, uh, not for the first time. Um, and basically the claim was that there was an emergency alert system that's been tested by FEMA, which is the US's sort of disaster agency. Um and that anti-vaxxers thought that this was in some way going to trigger part of the COVID-19 vaccine that was in people who'd been vaccinated and turn them, uh, either either give them various terrible diseases or pathogens um, that had been sealed somehow inside the vaccine up to that point and potentially turn some people into zombies. I don't think I need to say, but there's no evidence for that. Before we delve into the more bizarre aspects of that conspiracy, of which there are many, can you just explain what the actual purpose of the emergency alert was? They're testing an emergency alert system for when there's some sort of significant um, incident, um, disaster, natural disaster, you know, potential nuclear threats, all various terrible things that uh, keep people up at night. Um, quite similar to the one that was in the UK a few months back, um, where they basically your phone gets a message or an, possibly an alert sound that um, tells you that you know something's happening um, and what to do. Uh, and obviously, but in, in this situation, you get a message that says this is a test. We're just testing the system. Um, it's not actually new in the U.S. either. There's been there's similar kind of warnings in U.S. Mm-hmm. states. The, people will remember the accidental missile alert test in Hawaii in yeah. 2018, yeah. which caused understandable <laughs> concern and worry for some people. Um, and that was just by somebody accidentally triggering a um, alert that should be sent um, in an emergency situation when it wasn't actually happening. Yeah, and I remember we talked about the UK alert a few months ago. So were there yeah. similar conspiracy theories about it that time? I can't remember. Yeah, weirdly, it's very, very similar. Um, almost exactly the same. Um, there was, it, when, when, when it was trialed in the UK, there were all sorts of similar conspiracies. Um, a pathogen that was going to be activated in the vaccine. Um, that was one that went around um, parts of the anti-vax uh, community again like the current claims they obviously had no basis in reality and you know i suppose in some ways they were disproved by <laughs> what Events. didn't happen afterwards okay um and the sort of method by which people were to be turned into zombies was by contracting the marburg virus which is a real thing yeah uh, so can you just explain what the marburg virus is yeah, so the Marburg virus is, is something that's it's a really nasty illness, basically, that you can get, um, that humans can get, and it's passed on by a certain type of fruit bat, which sort of hosts this virus. Um, it seems to, it, consider it's a fairly, you know, there's been some small outbreaks in parts of the world before, 
um usually by f- coming from people who spent a lot of time in caves that have uh had you know bat guano all over them but it's sort of gained a bit prominent to hear about quite a lot linked to conspiracy theories um nowadays i think partly because it sort of got some media coverage around the time of COVID-19 pandemic because it's quite because it's a zoonotic uh, disease basically means it's an animal disease that can be passed on to humans people were concerned is this the next um you know the next COVID-19 and people were speculating about what potential you know other um viruses could come from could be passed over from people either um connect you know in wet markets and things like that where they might have bats that are dead that could then pass on a virus um, and obviously it's a much deadlier disease um, in terms of survival rate than COVID with seemingly WHO thinks it's on average about 50% survival rate from um, Barbara virus at the moment but again there's no evidence to suggest that it's, it's imminently going to be uh, <laughs> taking over the world it's just something that has some similarities in some people's minds to the COVID-19 the way the COVID-19 virus sort of started and spread. Yeah and also important to uh, note that uh, zombification is not a symptom it's not no, a very nice that's illness a but... good point yeah so do you have a sense of how widely that conspiracy theory spread among anti-vax communities i know obviously these communities get sort of more and more wild in some ways but mm. was this widely shared or was it still kind of even a fringe in those communities well i thought it was interesting about it i think we both noted when we sort of saw it developing was how interesting it was that it wasn't really very new and it was quite similar to ones that had happened in the uk and elsewhere um with that connection and obviously connecting uh the uh, the vaccine and um you know hidden alleged pathogen parts of it that can be activated in certain ways and also linking that to 5g which has been part of the um this claim and others as part of the kind of landscape of anti-vax covid anti-vaccination stuff since almost day one i mean when we started first even the first few months there's a lot of people talking about um 5g and connecting it to the covid19 virus so uh, yeah uh, my perception of it is that again like when it was in the uk it's not huge in terms of it's not it's not what you consider a mainstream part of the anti-vax um arsenal it's you know believed by some i would say more uh conspiracy minded people within that movement um, and it it tends to get these sort of quite seemingly more kind of uh, out there ones often tend to be slightly overpromoted in the media. Um, obviously, we're slightly guilty of that as well, but that's part of our job. <laughs> um, and people tend to like focus on them, so it might be you know it'll be it'll be more articles about this, and there might be around something that's a little bit less out there because it's you know not as kind of clickworthy. But no, I don't think it's particularly widespread. That's all I've got time for for this week. Thanks so much to Jan for coming on and uh, telling us all about the current state of uh, abortion misinformation around the world. Paul, if you want to get in touch with us, what can they do? They can get in touch on social media. So we're on X, formerly Twitter, at Fert Scott. We're also on Facebook, LinkedIn, all the other usual places. And we also have our community forum, which is community.theferret.scott where our journalists are hanging out waiting to pick up your leads and other such interesting things. Great. Well, um, I'll be sure to go there straight after the show today to hang about with you. (laughs) We will see you next time. Bye. Bye.